Okay, let's begin. There are some uh, handouts on the back table back there. We are looking... Well, and by the way, in case you weren't aware, today is our last lesson in this series of Sunday school classes. We will not have Sunday school over the duration of the summer. At some point during the summer, there will be an announcement about when we're picking back up again, probably the week after Labor Day. Uh, But we're going to be leaning into the leadership training uh, for men in the church who aspire to the office of elder and deacon, and that will be the burden of our teaching ministry over the summer, and then we'll come back to our Sunday school classes at large after that. Appropriately then, last week, DeWitt talked about the deacons and their qualifications and responsibilities. Uh, This morning, we are going to wrap up our time looking at elders, their qualifications and responsibilities. So three scripture passages you'll see printed at the top of your handout, and these are partial verses. 1 Timothy 3, 2, and we'll see this here in a moment when we get to the character, an overseer, speaking of elder, must be above reproach. So whatever else we're going to say about the qualifications of an elder, the overarching principle is that he must be above reproach. What are the responsibilities of an elder then? Acts is instructive. Acts chapter 20, verse 28 Paul is uh, meeting with the elders of the church in Ephesus, lamenting that they'll never see each other's faces again. He's off to Jerusalem where he anticipates persecution, and he commissions them to pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. And he goes on to say some other pretty significant things there, among whom the Holy Spirit has appointed you as an overseer. And so Paul's reflecting on the fact that it's not, it's more than an elected office in the church. It's a spirit-appointed responsibility, uh, which reminds us to whom we're ultimately responsible. Uh, and then he says who these people are. Who is the flock? He says those that Christ has purchased with his own blood. So what's the value of the congregation that we're given to shepherd? It's as valuable as Christ's blood which is you, by the way, each of you holds a value equal to the shed blood of Christ in the eyes of the session and in the eyes of the Lord. That's very significant. So uh, as sessions drift from that sort of thinking, they become self-serving and pharisaical, right? Ezekiel 34 is what I like to refer to as the antithesis of the job description of an elder. God speaks through Ezekiel to the shepherds of Israel and says, I am against you, Because you have not gone after the stray and not bound up the weak and not healed the injured and not fed the sheep. Instead, you've fed yourself on the fat ones and you've taken care of yourself. Because they begin to think that the sheep are theirs, not God's. And so God says, I'm going to come down and shepherd them myself. And then when Christ ascends, he sends forth his spirit and he gives gifts to the church, it says in Ephesians 4, among whom are pastors and teachers. And pastors and elders are very significantly uh, overlapping terms uh, in the New Testament. So pay careful attention to yourselves. If our doctrine uh, shifts or becomes suspect, then the care with which we oversee the church is lost. And the flock, those whom Christ has purchased with his blood. So what do the elders do? Again, last verse here listed at the top of our handout. Acts chapter 6, verse 4 You understand, uh, um, DeWitt addressed this text last week when he talked about the institution of the diaconate. There was a dispute over the distribution of goods between the Hellenists and the Hebraic Jews, and there was um, a lack of care occurring in this one district. And so the apostles drew the congregation together and said, appoint from among yourselves seven men who are full of the Spirit and of wisdom, But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. That was what they saw their responsibility as. Now, don't misconstrue what's happening here. They're not treating deacons as a less significant office in the church, simply a different one. This is the illustration I like to use when doing officer training. If we were all flying on a plane... And let's say that DeWitt was here with me, so DeWitt is an elder. And so DeWitt and I were the pilots of the plane. And we're flying over the ocean in our plane, and the whole congregation is in the back. And the deacons are the flight attendants. Their job is to distribute food, to make sure that everyone's warm, to make sure that everything is prepared for the flight, and that the passengers on the plane are cared for for the duration of their journey. 
Now, if DeWitt and I looked at each other and said, wouldn't it be a great service to our flight attendants if we went back there and served the meal? And, and they would love it. They'd go, oh, what a break. We haven't, we're going to sit down in our little jump seats and put our feet up and we're going to relax. Oh, we can take naps. This is gonna be, we've been laboring on this flight for hours and hours over this Atlantic Ocean. This is going to be great. And the passengers would feel very special. Oh, the pilots have come back to bring us our food. I mean, that's a, that's a big deal. Like, that, you know, these are the, the technical kind of, the, the pilots of the plane, they're handling that work, but they've taken a break from that duty to come back here and serve us our food and hand out warm towels and so forth. And you see the picture, everyone loves this because it's, it makes us feel good, but the plane is slowly falling out of the sky towards the ocean. And so it's not that the one is less important than the other. It's just that they're different responsibilities. And the elders are tasked with certain things. Prayer and the ministry of the word. And the diaconate is tasked with certain things. And that's the care and mercy ministry and physical responsibility of overseeing the needs of the congregation, which DeWitt addressed very well last week. Interestingly, in Acts chapter 6, I'm sure this verse is familiar to all of us. I remember when I first became aware of the order in which the apostles outlined their duties. Now, we can all say it, but if, if you were to ask 100 Christians, I would bet that upwards of 50 of them would say, ministry of the word and prayer, ministry of the word and prayer, because what's the visible aspect or element of the elder's ministry, of the pastor's ministry, is preaching, is teaching, is expounding the word for the congregation, teaching pure doctrine and so forth. And we tend to think that that has primacy in the office of elder, when in fact the apostles say it's prayer and the ministry of the word. It's almost as if the ministry of the word will be powerless if the prayer doesn't come first. So we'll come back to this in a little bit, but I want you to pay attention, just mark in your mind the significance of the order of elder responsibilities. So our goal this morning is to talk about the uh, qualifications and the responsibilities and then a a brief look at how we do it here at Christ Covenant Church. Kind of big picture here, I'm going to talk about the three C's of qualification, the three C's of elder qualifications, and you'll see them there on pages one and two. It's the character, competence, and compatibility. Now, you'll say, well, hold on a second. The Bible talks about character and competence. I'll agree with that. But there's no biblical text that talks about compatibility. And that's true by and large. I think that there is a compatibility issue uh, related to the relationship between leaders and the church. And I would turn to Acts chapter 1 to find that proof. In Acts chapter 1, they're seeking to replace Judas, who was numbered among the twelve, who were the leaders of the church, somewhat paradigmatic for the early uh, eldership of the church, oversight and so forth. And they said that there were certain aspects of those men's um, relationship with the eleven that mattered. They said they had to be there in the beginning. They had to have seen Jesus raised from the dead. They had to be aware of his teaching. They had to have traveled with this band of apostles the whole time. And there was a relational dynamic. It was more than simply they know how to talk or they know what the Bible says or they know who Jesus was. There was a pre-existing compatibility dynamic. The other example I would give from Scripture, and this is only parallel, so I, I confess up front that this is not ironclad, but... <clears throat> it's, it would be un, both untrue and unwise to suggest that the only thing that matters in marriage is uh, compatible gender. That a man and a woman who are physically compatible to have kids, like that's the, that's the primary dynamic. There has to be actual relational compatibility in order to dwell with someone in a covenant relationship for the long haul right? It's more than just, I love the Lord and you love the Lord. We're, we, we've got the right plumbing to make sure that we can propagate our family name and uh, covenant, have covenant children, and so that's good enough. You have to love each other. You have to like each other, and you have to be able to dwell together in harmony, and so there's a compatibility co- component that we're going to come to uh, as we go through this. So let's talk about the character. What a blessing that we just finished 
an evening worship sermon series through the book of Titus. And so much of this may be very familiar to us, and I'm not going to belabor this section uh, because it is uh, easy to find resources on what all of these things mean. Uh, There are resources listed on the last page as well, a number of books that I would suggest to you. But the bulk of the scriptural qualifications have to do with a man's character. This is fascinating to me. Um, we send a person to seminary for somewhere between three and five years. The school I went to, the MDiv program was 106 credits. There are only two that I know of in the country that have a larger requirement than that. Most of them are in the 80s or 90s. It's a, it's a very rigorous academic course of study to be qualified to teach the word and to ideally become a minister of the gospel or serve in the church as an elder. Yet Scripture's principal concern is about the character of a man, which, by the way, is why the local church is such an important part in the development of pastors and elders. Seminary, of course, is important, and we believe that an education is invaluable for the ability to guard the pure doctrine. But to be the sort of man who's able to do so with integrity and then to distribute that information to the flock with gentleness requires a certain type of character. And the church is really where that's um, recognized, decided upon. So above reproach is the overarching principle. Everything else we could largely say falls under the umbrella of being above reproach. Above reproach doesn't mean that you've never sinned. Uh, that no one anywhere would able to be able to throw an accusation at you from some time in your past. Um, I, I, I say it this way. Being above reproach does not mean that Jesus is the only person qualified to be an elder. Although some churches want that to be the case. And they find any and every reason to find fault with fallible men for their past or their um, idiosyncrasies, let's say, rather than sin issues. But above reproach simply means that you live your life in a way that no one can justly accuse you of not loving the Lord or being obedient to his word. And then Paul in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 details how that's expressed in the life of a man. He's the husband of one wife. Again, there are, uh, um, we're not going to go into the details of the arguments uh, for or against this position, only to say that at Christ Covenant Church, Our understanding of this text simply means that he is a one-woman man. He's not involved in adulterous or polygamous relationships. It doesn't necessarily mean that he, well, it certainly doesn't mean that he is married, but it doesn't necessarily mean that he's never been married before, whether through a divorce, a biblical divorce, of course. Um, That sounded like the opening theme song for Mr. Ed, didn't it? Um, A biblical divorce. I apologize for that. These things just fly into my head. Did, did you say it was required to be married? No, it's not. Okay. It's not required to be married. Um, so it doesn't say that he must have a wife, but that if he's a husband, he's the husband of one wife. Um, and so, it does That's right. It does not say that. We believe that if a man has been biblically divorced or widowed, for example, uh, there are some who would suggest, and and again, we're not going to detail all the arguments or the people who might suggest these things, that if a man is widowed, he can't therefore remarry. Or if he's been divorced due to infidelity on the part of his wife or abandonment, that he's not allowed to be remarried, or even if he remains unmarried, that the divorce disqualifies him from the office of elder. We do not subscribe to that. However, a man who has been divorced will certainly be responsible to explain how that was biblical and why he is qualified now to be an elder. I would also say uh, uh, there's, there's... there's kind of a line in, in the sand of a person's life that we recognize as being significant. And that line is the moment of conversion. And so there are people like the Apostle Paul, for example, who on the left side of that line were killing Christians and persecuting the church. And then on the right side of that line, he was faithfully preaching the gospel and going to all the nations to teach people about Jesus. He was not, therefore, 
uh, reproachable or disqualified from his office because prior to conversion he was living as a sinner. Right? And so there are elements like that that come into play. And a lot of, a lot of these things recognize that Scripture does not have parenthetical information contained in these lists of qualifications. It doesn't say, for example, the husband of one wife, and she has to be like this, and they have to be married this long, and they can't have had these backgrounds. And not quick-tempered. It's okay if he gets mad when his kids don't listen for the fourth time, but the third time, that's quick-tempered. Not a drunkard. He can have two glasses of wine, but if he's under 130 pounds, he can only have one because he's that drunk. It It doesn't say any of those things because it's left to the wisdom of the session to determine the character qualifications of a man who aspires to the office of overseer. And so if Glenn desired to be an overseer in the church, it wouldn't simply be a a list of check marks that get checked off that anybody can look at him from the outside and just critique. Rather, it's knowing a man well and saying his heart is disposed by the grace of God toward these attributes, these qualifications. Um, the husband of one wife and the children being believers and not open to the charge of debauchery, um, Paul in 1 Timothy makes reference to the fact that if a man cannot manage his own household, which is, as John Calvin referred to, a sort of miniature church, then how can he be expected to manage the household of God? There's covenant dynamics, right? The covenant family and the larger covenant, capital C, covenant family, capital F of the church, right? And so how a man manages things in his household, how he relates with his wife in partnership, will be reflective of how he relates with the rest of the men on the session in partnership. And how he relates with his children in discipline and in teaching and instruction will be synonymous with how he relates to the congregation, in teaching and in instruction and in discipline. And where there's disparity between the two, it's usually the case that he's harsher at home. And when that comes to light, he's disqualified. A lot of men will be very harsh and overbearing and aggressive and abrasive and condemning at church, but rather gentle and sweet and kind in the public eye because he cares more about his reputation than he does about honoring God in the office he's been given. Uh, If you came to DTS on Wednesday night, we read Francis Schaeffer's A Christian Manifesto, and in the closing chapter, Schaeffer makes reference to the fact uh, that a man who abuses any office that God has put him in has uh, abdicated his responsibility and has disqualified himself from it. Now, he's speaking in the terms of government context. A person who's been an elected official under the sovereign hand of God, who's elected into an office, and who despises the responsibility God has given him, and fulfills that office poorly, has disqualified himself from the respect due to the office holder. But when he uses the phrase, any office, I take Schaefer to be referring to the fact that a husband who, who creates a vacuum of leadership almost demands his wife fill it. And so he's causing her to sin by taking on a role that's not hers biblically to have, and he's sinning by failing to fulfill his. And the same is true as an old overseer of the church. An elder uh, who fails in his home will fail uh, in the parallel relationships in the church. So breezing through this list quickly, because I want to get to these next couple attributes, uh, not arrogant and quick-tempered and a drunkard and violent or greedy for gain. These are kind of negative qualifications that emphasize that a man ought to have himself under control. You can almost hear this reflecting on the fruit of the Spirit from a negative side, right? Rather than being gentle, uh, loving, and joyful, and peaceable, he's arrogant, quick-tempered, and violent. Rather than being self-controlled, he is uh, uh, quarrelsome and so forth. And so there's a reflection here on the sort of man he should be. It sounds Christ-like to me, doesn't it? When you look at these sort of uh, qualifications given here in Titus and 1 Timothy. I think there's a couple here. There's just a few that I want to lean on for a second as we go through. Uh, Hospitable. I think that in our day and age, and I would highly recommend Rosaria Butterfield's book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, I think she has a 
amazing grasp on what hospitality looks like in the life of the Christian person. As a Christian family, man or woman, and and how you can use your home and your resources to welcome people in. Sometimes that gets sort of superimposed onto the life of a pastor or elder who has, as we'll uh, we'll talk about momentarily, a shepherding group of up to 50 people. And there's a sort of expectation that means they're all going to be in each other's homes all the time. Hospitality has far more, it means far more than just cooking meals for people and welcoming them into your living room. It is still important, Jeff. You're right. It is still important. But what Paul is reflecting on here is not that elders will have their door open for people to come in for food, but rather that their hearts would be open to engaging with people and welcoming them into their lives. Now, that often takes the place around a table, right? That often takes place over coffee. That often takes place in homes. But just because you're not necessarily in someone's home doesn't mean that person isn't hospitable. Uh, Yes, Rosaria Butterfield, The Gospel Comes with a House Key is the name of the book. It's not on the resources because it just came to me now, um, but it's on the recording now. So, uh, This is someone, look at items 12 and 13 and 14. Someone who is upright, holy, and disciplined. I love these three qualifications. Someone who is upright, holy, and disciplined. It's a person who walks in obedience to the law, who pursues conformity to Christ, and who dedicates themselves to that end. It's the sort of person who disciplines their time, not in a legalistic way, not saying that getting up at 5 a.m. makes me a better Christian, but saying that getting up at 5 a.m. helps me to live my Christian life well, because I want to spend time with God and his word. And so a disciplined man Uh, is important for uh, qualifications for an elder. In fact, I would suggest, and many of you can attest to this, either through personal experience or through observation, that people who are generally undisciplined in their lives make for bad leaders in the church. Steve? So an upright man is able to posture the flock, right? That's right. Thank you. That was... (laughs) An upright man is able to, to posture the flock. That's good. Well, now it's, uh, now it's recorded for posterity's sake forever. Steve Wessels, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, and uh, he's a, not a recent convert. Interestingly, I do want to turn there for just a second in 1 Timothy chapter 3, where Paul talks about not being a recent convert. <clears throat> Verse 6 he must not be a recent convert, or he may become, become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. What that's not saying is that a recent convert is susceptible to the devil's temptations, as if a recent convert doesn't have the strength to resist the devil enticing him into a trap. Rather, it says a recent convert who gets puffed up with conceit is like the devil, and will, be conce- and will uh, fall into the same condemnation as him. Think about that for a moment. It's not that a young believer doesn't have the strength to fight off temptation by the grace of God and the power of the Word of God in his life. It's not that the devil is more able to tear down a new convert. It's that a new convert who becomes puffed up with conceit is just like the devil who sees himself as godlike and falls into condemnation because of it. If that's the case, why did he even put recent convert in there? Why wouldn't he just say a man? Well, I think the two are related, Craig. What he, uh, my point is simply that what he's saying is that recent converts who see themselves in great positions of authority and power will be devil-like in their response to it. And so, of course, there's probably some connection with a man who's recently converted and hasn't displayed humility over years to, to uh, have those tools. But it's often kind of narrowly understood simply to mean that recent converts are super susceptible to the temptations of the devil. But really, this is talking about the condemnation of the devil rather than the temptation of the devil. Last one, number 20, he's well thought of by outsiders. Um, You know, you can probably think of people, I can think of people uh, who are brilliant expositors of the word, godly, caring shepherds 
who are somewhat ivory tower in their approach to pastoral ministry and shepherding ministry. And they don't have any relationship with their neighbors, with their co-workers, with their uh, fellow citizens, and so forth, because they somewhat isolate themselves from the world around them. They have no ability to speak into conversations that are happening at the coffee shop next to them or with their waitress or waiter or on a, to a passenger next to them on the plane because they're not involved in the world. They don't know what's going on, and they have no reputation with outsiders. What Paul envisions here for the elders of the church is men who are engaged with the world around them. They're well thought of by outsiders. means you have to be known by people outside the church. And so a good question to ask a a candidate for eldership is, how many non-Christian friends do you have? Who knows that you're a Christian that you know is not a Christian, and what do they think of you? Um, So there's, there's there's an image here that Paul is portraying of a person who is both involved and godly in the church and involved and godly outside of the church. And the people outside of the church may disagree with him, but they respect him. And think well of him because of his character. Not ashamed of the gospel. That's a great connection, Chris. And this really should apply to all of us, whether we're elders or not. We should still have that same type of reputation. Nancy, you're absolutely right. And I think that Neil said this in the, in, towards the beginning of our time in Titus. So this is a few months ago. Everyone, every Christian ought to be like this. Elders must be like this. Right? Every Christian should aspire to be like these lists of qualifications that Paul makes in 1 Timothy and in Titus. But elders must meet these qualifications in order to be an elder in the church. So you're absolutely right. All Christians should be holy and upright and self-controlled and not quick-tempered and not greedy for gain. And they should be respectable and not quarrelsome. And they should be well thought of by outsiders. But elders have to be. So there's character qualifications, and then there's competence qualifications. So what makes an elder? Skills-wise, Scripture says two things. He must be able to give instruction, that's able to teach, and able to rebuke those who contradict sound doctrine. And then just look there at letter B. Why? For there are many who are insubordinate. So this is being drawn out of Titus chapter 1. The man who is qualified to be an elder must be able to give instruction. So there's a positive sort of um, uh, uh, output of information into the life of the church. And there's also a negative contradicting those who would espouse false doctrine. And so he has to know what he believes and he has to know what they believe in order to contradict it well, in order to counter it strongly. You all know this from writing papers in college or, or watching debate or taking debate when you were younger. Uh, a paper is not, you're not going to get a good grade on a research paper if you never engage with opposing arguments. And even if you do engage, you have to engage with the best opposing arguments and then counter them strongly. So if your thesis so just uh, this is just out of nowhere. If your thesis is that the reintroduction of the gray wolf to the greater Yellowstone National Park region was a travesty that has caused ecological damage and financial damage to the surrounding states, you have to engage with the best arguments in favor of reinstituting the gray wolf and protecting them uh, for your, your argument to hold water, Right? Uh, And so the elder needs to be able to do just that. He needs to be able to say, there's a reason we're Protestant and not Roman Catholic. And then the Roman Catholic says, well, why is that? I need to know what he believes or she believes in order to counter that false teaching effectively. So it requires a lot of information, doesn't it? Can you imagine in our day and age, the amount of information that an elder needs to have rattling around up there in their gray matter in order to know the arguments that they're going to face? Now, notice, though, my little sub-point one here under competence. He must be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. I think that there is an unfair and unbiblical expectation placed on some elders, some men in pastoral ministry, that they need to be able to give instruction in everything. That's impossible. 
Doctrine is the focus of our concern as elders and pastors in the church. That's what we're tasked with teaching and guarding and protecting. Now, there, again, uh, um, this is somewhat of a rabbit trail, but uh, and it's not on your notes. One of the reasons that we have a plurality of elders is because an area that I may be weaker in outside of the narrow scope of sound doctrine, another man may be very strong in. And an area that he's weak in, the next guy around the table is very strong in. And I like to say it like this. Any man can come to the session meeting with a great idea. So there's eight men. Eight men on our session, six elders, two ministers. And so you have Neil and myself, and you have Rick, Sonny, Marshall, DeWitt, Jim, and Eric, who's right over there. Eric can come to a session meeting with a brilliant idea, and often does. Jim can come to the session meeting with a brilliant plan, and often does. But those ideas are never complete ideas without the rest of the men on the session. Because we fill each other out. And so we're like the uh, trivial pursuit piece. It's got those little pie pieces on it, and you have to answer your history and your science and your pop culture and you know all the different questions in order to get all those pie pieces. And we represent those pie pieces as we fill out the whole playing piece in order to have a, a cohesive and fully equipped team, a plurality of elders to lead the church well. But <clears throat> I put that subpoint in there simply to encourage you to not expect your elders to do things they're not required or expected to do. Able to teach in sound doctrine. And there may be some who have personal interests in history or personal interests in politics or personal interests in some other field that you find very fascinating. But as far as the church and her ministries are concerned, the session is responsible to give instruction in sound doctrine. Uh, let me just finish the fleshing this out there. Point C, able to teach also does not mean world-class preacher or teacher. So I'm, I'm overlapping the relationship between pastors and elders here, I admit. But a few things that I think need to be said. Many men on godly, qualified men on sessions all over the world do the majority of their teaching through one-on-one -on -one discipleship rather than in public settings. Many of the men who are very godly, very competent in giving instruction, knowing doctrine, and whose lives are above reproach are nervous as all get out standing behind a lectern or behind a pulpit. And I don't believe that that disqualifies them because teaching includes private instruction. Now, I will say this. I do think that all of the elders here at Christ Covenant Church when push comes to shove, would stand in that pulpit with the word of God open and preach. I don't think that all of us on the session are anything close to world class. But because of the day and age we live in, <clears throat> where you can go home and listen to any number of the best preachers who have lived in the last 50 years, you can listen to their sermons, you can listen to their podcasts, you can listen to their Sunday school teachings, you can go on YouTube and watch their videos. They like to do little blogs where they just post a 15-minute you know, talking headshot with their library books behind them, and they teach you some wonderful truth about Scripture. And we've come to expect that that level, the seminary professor level of teaching, ought to be in every local church Sunday school room. And having pastored a church in a rural town of 1,200 people with only a few people in the congregation, the pressure of that is immense. Because a person will come into church on Sunday, say nothing about your sermon, or say nothing to the elder who's teaching Sunday school about their Sunday school, other than to say, I was listening to John MacArthur this week, and he taught the most amazing class on that thing you tried really hard to teach last week. <laughs> So just realistic and biblical expectations, please. Able to teach does not mean world class. It means that they can convey the information that is in a way that's understandable and true, but not necessarily noteworthy. Now, I do think, and again, this is, this is subjective. As many of these things are, what is world class? What is able to teach? Um, but I do think that if a person can't explain their way out of a wet paper bag that they probably aren't called to be an elder, even if they are eminently godly. And so there is a line there that we need to be on the correct side of. 
but I do want to, I'm saying what I'm saying right now to temper expectations of what elders ought to do and are able to do. <clears throat> okay, compatibility. This last point here under the qualification bit, and I do want to get into the uh, responsibilities. I'll just say a couple brief things. Let me ask you a question. When I say that, do you say, yeah, right? Like in your mind, when I say, I'm going to say a couple of brief things, do you instinctively go, no, we won't. We're going to be here for a while. <laughs> I feel like I, we've gotten there, and I'm okay with that, but uh, I'm, still going to, I'm still going to try to warm you up uh, with those qualifiers. I don't feel like that's criticism or that's, that doesn't scare me. I mean, I, I love to quit whatever you're say. You know the only person who doesn't love it? The only person who doesn't love the time I take is my watch. And uh, it's constantly ticking loudly in my ear. Here we go. Compatibility. Being qualified as an elder does not mean that you ought to be an elder or that you need to be an elder. And in fact, I would suggest that if your instinct is that you need to be an elder, you're not qualified to be an elder. There's a difference between desiring to pursue the office of overseer and needing it to fulfill some hole in your life or some sense of self-worth. Um, it's a terrifying task to be an elder of the church. It is anyway to people who understand what it really means. There are a few passages in Scripture that I refer to as texts that terrify. And one of them is in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, where the author of the Hebrews tells the church to, um, well, I don't want to misquote him, he, he tells them about the way that they ought to relate to their elders, and he says to obey and submit to them, <clears throat> for they are keeping watch over your souls. And if it stopped there, I would go, okay, I mean, that's pretty heavy, right? That's pretty weighty. Obey and submit to your leaders because they're keeping watch over your souls. And then he adds this, as those who will have to give an account. Uh, I think if that verse alone was reinforced into the minds of elder candidates, that a lot who, quote unquote, aspire to the office would fall by the wayside. Yeah, they'd be out. Uh, not by disqualification, but by choice. It's Hebrews thirteen seventeen. It's terrifying that there is an expectation that those who become teachers will be held to a stricter judgment, that those who oversee the church will be held to an account for how they do their job as shepherds and caring for the souls of Christ's people, those whom he purchased with his blood. And so if you feel like you need to be an elder, you probably shouldn't be an elder. If you are qualified to be an elder, it doesn't necessarily mean you ought to be an elder, or more specifically, that you ought to be an elder at this church. So there are, there are considerations that both the session and the individual who feels called ought to walk through. What's the size of the congregation? You know, if we had a congregation of 55 members and nine elders, that might be a little bit overkill. Uh, it might be okay. We had the conversation about deacons last week, right? There were 5,000 Christians, six deacons, seven deacons. So I don't know if that's a biblical ratio that we should be putting into place. I sure hope it isn't. But uh, if we've got an almost one-to-one ratio of elders to members, that might not be necessary. What's the size and the needs of the session? So it depends on the session's vision and their organization, the way that they handle their responsibility for soul care. Uh, having more men may be more or less helpful. You've heard the phrase, too many cooks in the kitchen. The issue is not that there are too many people who know what they're doing. It's that there are too many people trying to be the one doing it. And so having a lot of cooks is fantastic if you're running a restaurant, but if they're all standing around one burner trying to cook the meal, it becomes chaos. And so the needs and size of the session, the makeup of the session. So what's the session's personality? What is her vision? How is the session organized to lead the church into the coming years? It may simply be, and I'll just use, I'm going to use Jeff as my example here. Oh, I shouldn't have picked you. No, I'm going to. So this is going to take some work. So everybody prepare yourselves to use your imaginations. Let's say that, that Jeff was... Uh, Eminently qualified to be an elder. And by the way, I think very highly of Jeff. So I'm not, I'm not busting his chops right now. That, it doesn't take imagination. It doesn't take imagination for that part. He is, quali- he is a godly man. I love Jeff. 
and the, the session over here had come up with vision and direction for Christ Covenant Church for the coming years. And we had a, a one, a five, and a ten-year plan about hires and, and the services and the building and so forth. And we brought a guy in who's nothing like Jeff, but who would throw out a lot of contrarian questions and ideas. Right? That might derail the vision and direction of the session. And so Jeff may be qualified, according to the scriptural lists, but might not fit this group because he's pulling this way and the session's already united in vision this way, right? That doesn't mean there's any problem with Jeff or with the session. It may simply mean that in this season, it doesn't make sense for him to be an elder. Is that fair? Jeff, did I hurt your feelings? No. I know I didn't. 100%. So these are considerations. Personal uh, time availability. Um, a person who has just started a new job or has gotten a promotion at their work, it might not be a good time for them to become an elder because it does require time. I'll, I'll get to this in a little bit, but we meet uh, at Christ Covenant Church twice a month, as well as an elder retreat every year, as well as vision meetings with the deacons quarterly, as well as every Sunday morning at 7 o'clock we have a prayer meeting over the phone, as well as countless other times. Two of our elders are at all of our staff meetings every Monday, which includes Neil and myself and Chris. It's a lot of time. Eric's been teaching Sunday school over there for months. Rick has been teaching your, uh, our children over in one of the rooms. Marshall is next door right now teaching. DeWitt has been in here teaching and leading the worship service. It takes a lot of work. And so time commitment is a consideration. And then finally, denominational distinctiveness. It may be that you were an elder in a Presbyterian or Reformed denomination over here that doesn't align in some ways with the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church or vice versa. So, just things to consider as far as compatibility goes. What are our responsibilities? Yes, sir, Jeff. I think two together is really excellent. I've heard these three seasons before. I think mentioned by you, maybe a couple other people have seen before. For men, considering what's coming up here in the community and the announcements of leadership training, I'm going to get to this in just a minute. So, I, that's never happened. It happens because of this. This is why it happens. Yeah, that's right. That's excellent. Right. Yeah. But everybody can have a different impression, description on each of these characters. So, so here's how I'd summarize all this. If you feel like you may want to attend the leadership training coming up in June through September, or you feel like nominating or encouraging someone to attend, have them or yourself go through this list, listen to this Sunday school class, encourage those who aren't here to listen to this Sunday school class, and then the part of the purpose of the leadership training, just jumping ahead there to point one, is to uh, help men discern a call and help the session evaluate their competence and compatibility. Okay, So part of the process, it seems like we're getting the cart ahead of the horse in asking a man to come to the leadership training, but part of that process is for him to come in there and go, you know what, I thought this was for me. It's clearly not, right? Or for us to say, we're glad you came, but we don't think we're going to move on to the next um, session. That was no pun intended. Uh, it's kind of like uh, church speed dating. Okay, responsibilities. Timothy Whitmer in his wonderful book, The Shepherd Leader, he says, the fundamental responsibility of church leaders is to shepherd God's flock. That's as simple as it gets. I want to outline how we do that. Three ways. Number one is prayer. As we said earlier in our introduction, prayer is a first order responsibility. Acts chapter 6 verse 4 puts prayer first. You cannot read an epistle in the New Testament and not walk away recognizing the significance of prayer. From church leaders all the way down to the recipients of the letters, prayer is an important ministry in the church. It was a ministry of the churches to pray for Paul. 
that he ought to speak, that he'd be able to speak the gospel boldly as he ought to do. And it was the ministry of Paul as an apostle to pray for the church, both in giving thanks and in specific areas that he would encourage them by uh, letting them know how he was praying for them. So, for example, I have a shepherding group. This is kind of unique um, because of the increased size of our church's membership and the steady size of our church's session. Uh, It's become borderline overwhelming for six men to have so many family units and individuals as part of their shepherding group that they're responsible to visit with, communicate with, pray for every day. And so I have taken a number of those families from each kind of uh, uh, like a like a new team in a sport, right? Like when the Vegas Golden Knights became a team, they held a sort of lottery draft, and they took players from every other team in the league. And so that's kind of what happened. I got to ask for certain people. Certain people were given to me. And so now I have a group of about 25 families and individuals that I shepherd. And my responsibilities include daily time and prayer for them. Every day, every day, I pray for everyone on my list. And then that list is then broken down Throughout the, throughout the week, six days out of the week, where I pray for specific ones about more specific things. So as I communicate with them, I'll say, please let me know ways that I can pray for you specifically. So when they come up on Wednesday, for example, I'm praying for those particular needs. Prayer is a first-order responsibility. It reminds us of a number of things. It reminds us of the relationship and the need that we all have to go before the Lord. The relationship that we have with one another. Interesting how the Lord's Prayer, Jesus says, they said, Lord, teach us how to pray. And he says, pray like this. Our Father, give us our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses. Lead us not into temptation. Because there's an expectation that we will be praying with and for other Christians. Prayer keeps us united to one another. It keeps us humble and guards us from anxiety. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 5, cast your anxieties on him because he cares for you. I already said earlier, it's a stressful work. It is a weighty task to shepherd the flock of Christ, to be an elder or a minister in the church, and a deacon as well, I would say. It is a weighty task, and it can be uh, overwhelming at times when you feel terribly, terribly inadequate. Uh, as you know, our church recently went through a major tragic loss of one of our members. And one of the elders and I were driving together in my car to go visit a family in the church. And the two of us on this drive, maybe 15 minutes, we just repeated over and over back and forth to each other. I feel so inadequate to this. I feel so afraid of what might be asked or what might be said or what might be felt or what might be expected. And we just prayed over and over again, Lord, give us the strength. Only you know what they need and what they're going to say, and only you have the words of life. And so prayer keeps us humble, and it helps free us from anxiety because when we walk into that front door or when we come into your front door or even when we do church discipline on someone who's living in sin, we know that the Lord has it all under control. And prayer keeps us tethered to his sovereignty and providence. And so prayer is a first-order responsibility. It reminds us, finally, who we're really working for. Ministry of the Word. One of the ways that we shepherd God's flock is through the ministry of the Word. I love 2 Timothy 2 2. Teach others who will teach others who can teach others. And so there's this <clears throat> self propagating form of discipleship that's expected from the church leaders. And this is done, as we've already explained in enough detail, through preaching, Sunday school teaching, for example, and officer training, which we'll come to in just a moment. Finally, the last term that I'll use here for the care of the flock or for the shepherding of the flock is soul care. Uh, This is Martin Bootser, who was a contemporary of John Calvin and Martin Luther. He wrote a book called Concerning the True Care of Souls. And in it, he outlines all the biblical reasons why caring for the souls of people of the congregation is the responsibility of the elders. It's brilliant, it is convicting, and it's such a warm book. I do recommend it if you are thinking about the office of elder in the church. He was a pastor. Butcher was, yeah. Um, So now under here, these four categories, however, I've gleaned from Tim Whitmer's book. 
So Whitmer talks about four areas of macro and micro shepherding. Macro shepherding, big picture, church stuff. Micro shepherding, individual members, families in the church. And so I've combined these here for your benefit, I hope, because I believe these uh, outline what soul care looks like. He says, caring for the souls of people is knowing, feeding, leading, and protecting them. It's knowing, feeding, leading, and protecting them. On a larger level, knowing them is about a healthy church membership structure. The elders, are, which I already explained a little bit earlier as far as the shepherding care, but having a healthy church membership structure wherein the elders know those who are asking to join our church and for all intents and purposes stand guard at the front gate, right? We're guarding the sheep pen here of Christ Covenant Church by having a healthy church membership structure and knowing who's coming in to our flock. On a micro level, it means personal relationship and visitation. It's not enough just to simply to pray for the people here. It's important that I know Craig, and then I can talk to Craig about what's going on in his life, and I know Steve, and I know what he's interested in and cares about, and I know him well enough to intercede on his behalf or teach and instruct in cases where it matters. Feeding happens on a a macro level in the teaching of the word ministries of the church. So preaching and Sunday school and so forth, where large public big picture events are happening and the members of the church are growing in their understanding of the knowledge of God through the exposition of his word. More one-on-one that happens in discipleship relationships where elders meet with people, whether in their shepherding group or individuals from within the congregation to help them grow in godliness on a personal level. We care for the souls of the church by leading them well. And I think there's two ways that we do this. Overseeing the church's ministries, in other words, providing a place and an environment in Christ's covenant church that is conducive to sanctification. We want to provide an environment that sets the conditions for growth in relationship with Christ. And so if all of our ministries were exclusively outward focused, We wouldn't be setting an environment or creating an environment here that allows younger Christians to grow in their maturity in Christ and flourish. Rather, we'd be sending them out ill-equipped to do outward-facing ministries. But if all of our ministries were inward-facing like a big huddle, we wouldn't be equipping people to move beyond the personal, individualistic, consumeristic relationship with Christ into living all of life as a Christian person. And facing outward into the world. And so we believe that at Christ Covenant Church, we have a healthy balance of inward and outward facing ministries. Jim teaches really well on this outward face of the church. And I'm sure you'll hear more from him or if you haven't already. And then finally, protect the church. We care for the souls of the church by exercising church discipline. Uh, This reflects back on what Paul says earlier in Titus. uh, Able to give instruction in sound doctrine because there are many who are insubordinate and would creep in and teach false things. And so we protect the church by exercising church discipline, keeping away wolves, um, removing leaven from the lump, such as it were, in order to ensure the purity of the church here at Christ's covenant. And part of that requires cultural awareness. I mentioned this earlier, but it's simply not enough. I, I say this with fear and trembling. It's simply not enough to sit down in a quiet room at a table with your Bible open and a pen and paper in your hand and expect that you're going to shepherd Christ's church in 2021 with any effectiveness as it it relates to their interactions with the world around them. We need to know what's happening out there, even as Nancy pointed out a moment ago, and be aware of false teaching and worldly philosophies and vain deceit, as Paul calls them in Colossians chapter 2, and so forth, in order to have a holistic approach to caring for the souls of Christ's people. Even again, as we reflect on Schaeffer's writings in his Christian Manifesto, being a Christian means applying the capital T truth of the gospel and of Christ's lordship to all of our lives. I don't mean to each of our lives, but to all of your life every facet of it. 
And so being aware of what's going on in the world, not necessarily sitting down with your TV on your favorite news station all day long, but having an awareness of how the gospel applies across this spectrum of silos in an individual's life is an important part of soul care. All right, and in closing minutes here. At Christ Covenant Church, what do our elders do? What's not necessarily unique about Christ Covenant Church, but how are we... Um, What's the, what's the term? Skinning the cat. Is that okay? Anybody? Any, is that okay? Raking the leaves. How are we raking the dry leaves off of Nancy's yard? I know we all know Nancy. I, every time I see dry leaves now, I think, oh, poor Nancy. She, she hates us. Well, we... <laughs> I, you know, next time I get a chance to, I will. We have, a, we have an annual leadership training course for men who are interested in holding office. This is one of the ways uh, that we do it here at Christ Covenant Church. Uh, it's required that you go through our leadership training. Some people in this room have already signed up for this upcoming um, uh, session. We have annual leadership training, as Jeff was alluding to earlier. And through this training, some men discern their call. They'll say, I'm not really sure, but I do aspire to it. I know that it's noble to aspire to the office. And so I'm interested in finding out more about whether or not I'm qualified and what in particular happens. And so they come to this 14, 13-week leadership training. And over the duration of that time, we are engaging with them in order to evaluate compatibility, competence, and so on. And they're evaluating themselves in light of these biblical principles. And so you as a congregation can feel assured that the people that we're putting forward for a vote into the office are men who have been trained and evaluated. And it's not a popularity vote. It's not simply a matter of, well, this group over here likes that guy. He has to come through this pipeline of training and evaluation in order for the session to ensure that we're not going to create disunity on our team. And we're not going to put somebody before the congregation who isn't qualified and prepared to lead. Now, knowing character, we talked about compatibility and competence. Knowing character comes through personal relationship far more than a classroom setting. Again, going back to my illustration earlier about the difference between seminary and the local church. The leadership training is kind of like seminary, where we teach things. And we evaluate the dynamic, the interpersonal dynamics that are going on there. But the character part happens through personal relationship with these men, through getting coffee with them, through being in their homes and having them in our homes. Through Jeff, who is your elder? Who's y'all's elder? DeWitt. DeWitt. So if Jeff were to come, our conversation would be with DeWitt, talk to us about Jeff. Because he's got a personal relationship with you as your shepherding elder that exceeds mine or Eric's or, and so forth. And so there's part of that at play as well. Kyle, yes? Is, is this leadership training only for the office of elder or is it also And deacon. deacon. It is for both. It's for people who... Are very they are, but we go through some very... Ba- well, the qualifications are quite similar. Right. Uh, but we go through basic instruction in doctrine, um, uh, Christology, um, sacramentology, uh, the outward face of the church, as I mentioned earlier, Jim talks about that, so our elders and deacon candidates are thinking about the outside face of the church and how we engage with the world. And so the overlap between them on a foundational level is enough that we think that officer training is one, one expression makes sense. And then what will happen is deacons will begin meeting with Neil specifically and with the current deacons, the current diaconate, for follow-on instruction and training, and the elders on the other side as well. Yeah. Great question, though. There is some, some difference there, but uh, there's enough proximity that we do it all together. So some men are recommended, as I mentioned earlier, if you know somebody that you think, I think that so-and-so should be an elder or deacon, shoot me an email. Some are invited. They'll be reached out to by myself or Neil or one of the elders. We think that you should attend this training. And some volunteer, I'd like to go. That's okay. 1 Timothy 3.1, if anyone aspires to the office, he aspires to a noble thing. It's our responsibility in that training to evaluate perhaps the motive of that aspiration. We have a non-rotary service on the session. Some churches adopt a rotary model, which means that they do like three years on, one year off. Or some I know will do three years on and then another three years, but then you're forced to take your seventh year off, uh, which is fine for the churches that do. We 
believe that that can stunt the cohesion and unity of vision and direction. So we have a lifetime appointment here. Unless you disqualify yourself uh, or ask to come off the session, uh, a man is appointed to eldership for a lifetime at Christ Covenant Church. Sabbaticals are available. There's a process for that in our form of government that I won't detail for you. Uh, but if, for example... Um, if I were an elder here and I was going through a season of particular difficulty or busyness or something, I said, I simply don't have the time to commit and I would be a detriment to the session. I would create a vacuum that somebody else could fill. I may request to step off of the session and that would be uh, understandable. What's the fog thing? Uh, form of government. That's our, just our ARP standards. Yep. So lastly, there are shared and unique responsibilities in the government, disciplining, and shepherding of the church. And just uh, in closing then, here are the shared, and this is not exhaustive, but shared in total oversight. In other words, the vision for the church and care for her members. Each elder, and together the session, is charged with guarding the pure doctrine, protecting the church, and shepherding the souls. That's something that each one is responsible for. Uh, Again, I'm using names as examples here, but Jim is not excluded from the government part of the church. Like he loves the soul care, but he doesn't get involved in the church discipline part or doesn't get involved in the vision part. That's not how it works, right? Eric is really focused on on government and structure and organization, but he doesn't really get into the shepherding part because that's not how it works. We're all together sharing the responsibility of caring for the church's members and casting vision for the direction of Christ's covenant church as we believe the Spirit leads. Uh, as I said earlier, we meet twice a month for vision and pastoral concerns. The, these, this includes the business of the church, which sounds some might sound somewhat distasteful when you hear the business of the church, but there are legitimate things that we have to deal with that are business-like and we have an agenda and so forth that we go through when we meet. And one of the things that I do love about Christ Covenant Church, and I've witnessed this done, I've witnessed the, the, the churches who don't speak with one voice and the damage that that causes. We decide that we're going to hire a person for such and such. And if one of the men on the session didn't like it, and he came over here to Craig and was like, you know what, Craig? I really feel like you would be a great administrator. Maybe you should tell the session that you'd like to be the next administrator over at the staff house. And Craig goes, yeah, that's a good idea. I really like that idea. I might try to do that. But what I'm really doing is trying to get my guy in there and create some sort of um, grumbling over here when the session comes forth and says, you know, we've actually decided that it's Nancy. And then Craig goes, well, wait a minute. Kyle told me it should be me. What's going on over there in the session? And it creates, it drives a wedge. And so we speak as one voice with the session. That will always be the case. We're committed to that. It's one of the promises that we make to each other, that we will speak with one voice as a session. Because the session as a group and its care for the church is more important than any one person on it. To include Neil, to include me, uh, the session is more important than any one of the individuals on it. But we have unique responsibilities in the particular care of supervision and shepherding groups. I already mentioned this earlier, that each of us has a unique shepherding group that we care for. We do that through phone calls, visitation, prayer, and so forth. And certain elders have particular oversight of certain ministry areas. So like Rick is over our youth, um, DeWitt oversees our diaconate, and so on and so forth. There are different elders who cover down and have contact with the ministry leaders of those areas. And so as you can see, the qualifications are heavy. The responsibilities are intense. And the way that we practice it here at Christ Covenant Church is um, time-consuming. But it is the greatest joy for me, and I know for the other men on the session, to be charged with this task, mostly because Christ Covenant Church makes it a joy to shepherd the flock among us. Has Piper? Oh, I'm sorry. Piper, yeah. As a quick question, do you know if you all will be recording your training session? I don't know. I would say that we pro- if we do, that's probably not going to be posted because part of the requirement for 
uh, office in the churches to attend because there's a personal dynamic of connection in those in that environment that we find very important. So it wouldn't be right to let somebody not come to any of those and then be put forth as a candidate. 2019, they recorded. Okay. Yeah, we we may. Yeah, it's not been discussed, but just specific to the the potential question of whether or not a person has to attend, I would say yes. Yeah, Nancy. Hmm. That person may not be able to work with women quite as well. They have a different aspect or a focus in hmm. their shepherding. Plus the fact witnessing in general in the church. I think that this would be very helpful for the church to have women involved, not as the officers, but in their position as doing what we should do okay. in order to help. I will bring that up. I'm writing it down right now. It's a good question, but I'll, I'll bring it up to the session and we'll talk about future classes and so forth that we might hold. Let me close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning, uh, for the beautiful sunshine outside these windows, and for the wonderful building that you've blessed us with that uh, exudes the beauty of God himself, that we believe reflects your worth and value to the best of our limited ability. Would you help us to cherish it and care for it well? Would you help us more than that to treasure and cherish and care for one another well? as we reflect on the significance that each of us has, not just as image bearers, uh, but as those whom Christ shed his blood for. Go with us now into this worship hour. Lord, we pray that Christ would be glorified and your people would be edified through the preaching of the word, through the ministry of prayer, and through the singing of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, Lord, as we make melody in our hearts to you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.